there are three common forms of hair loss in women. No matter what type you have, they aren't something you should have to suffer with. Hair Active from Primrose Leaf helps slow down hair loss and provides your hair and your scalp with proper nutrition. Join the thousands of people who are back to combing and brushing their hair again. Hair Active strengthens hair, improves texture, and increases fullness. Call Primrose Leaf today, 844-376-0007. That's 844-376-0007. Or visit us at primroseleaf.com. The Lax are one of the biggest bands, if not the biggest band of the country rap rock genre with over 1 billion, that's right ladies and gentlemen, 1 billion streams on Pandora, over 500 million views on YouTube, and over 400 million streams on Spotify. Now one of the band's most identifiable songs, Kicking Up Mud, was recently certified gold, with a total album sales now approaching 1 million. So ladies and gentlemen, none of that has come from radio or a big publicity campaign. It's all about their fan base spreading the news about their music. They have performed and toured with Jamie Johnson, Uncle Cracker, Buck Cherry, even Blackstone Cherry to name a few. And they are here today to talk about their brand new single, Hellraisers in Heaven, and so much more. So let's welcome Clay Sharp of the Lax to the show. Welcome, Clay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Man, I, I tell you what, I, I appreciate the, the Georgia Bulldog cap. So for all of you Georgia Bulldog fans out there, we went back to back. And maybe we'll do maybe we'll do a three peat. What do you think? Oh man. Uh I don't I don't like to get greedy. So I'm I'm just homer right now. <laughs> I got I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, hey, I got you know, when I was reading uh the background on the group, um I was stunned on the numbers. How in the world did you amass such a very large following without the help of radio? Man, it, it was crazy. And I still say this today, like we wrote a song about mud bogging, expecting nobody in the country to get what we were talking about. And, and our first tour, I think we would go up to Michigan and they know every word of it. And I'm like, y'all mud bog up here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's a way of life. And I'm like, well, I, I, I didn't know the whole country loved a mud bog. I thought it was just a South Georgia thing. It's a Texas thing too. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I, my gosh, I mean, even still today, you know, I don't, you know, we see a lot of lifted trucks, but, uh, you know, I remember, you know, probably about 10 years back, you know, a normal lift was between eight and 12 inches high. Yeah. Yeah. That's normal. <laughs> Yeah, have to get a ladder to get in them, but yeah, we know what mud bogging is, especially in Texas, especially in East Texas. So yeah, it's still a big deal. And uh, hey, I, I, you know, was the was the success of that one song, I mean, more than shocking? It, it definitely was because you know it, it it was at a time where we really didn't even know too much about YouTube at the time. Like we we. You know, we, we might use YouTube for an instructional video or two. And then all of a sudden we got people calling us three months after the video comes out saying, Hey man, this, this thing just hit 5 million views. And we were like, okay, is, is that good? And um, we were still so green to it. Like we really didn't know we were having success until we started touring off of that song. And like I said, you go to places like, seattle and sell out a show on a sunday and they're singing every word and i'm like 
I didn't expect to put 30 people in this venue, much less sell it out. And yeah, it, it, that's that's crazy because you know here you are from the south. I mean, and if if that was that the first song that you released? Yeah, yeah, that was the that was the first song we released. Um, I, I think we maybe had a thousand dollars in the whole video, and and most of that thousand dollars went to beer and liquor to you know shoot the video. We 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 have we we needed we needed that stuff in that one. <laughs> Well, how in the world did you cr start uh, jumping in, creating a tour? I mean, were you just, were y'all just playing in the local area? And then yeah. when did you decide to branch out to go out of state? Yeah, it, it was crazy because, you know, before that, you know, we, yeah, it was just a local tour kind of thing. Every now and then we'd venture out to a connecting state. And then all of a sudden, the guy that's booking us, or kind of our booking agent slash tour manager, he just starts getting random calls from everywhere, from Michigan, Seattle, Northern California. And it's like, okay, I guess we need to maybe try to put a tour together now and see what happens. Well, wow, so what was it like uh, when you went on your first official tour? I mean, you know, going, was it, were you like being the headliner in, in small venues or did you jump in as being an opening act for a bigger act? Yeah, you know, yeah, we were we were headliners in smaller venues. I mean, we even rented a, a go RV camping RV to go to the West Coast to tour the first time, and it it tore up on us like every other day. And but I mean, I I wouldn't trade that for anything though, because that was one of the funnest tours I've ever been on still today. Well, how did the band come together? Well, me and Brian, we we had always worked on music, you know, just your typical small town thing like and uh you know we would just hang out and pick around on the guitar a little bit and you know we we started trying some things because i mean we grew up in the 90s so i call the 90s music scene almost the mix cd scene and what i mean by that is if you're a kid in the 90s when you sit down at your computer to burn you a cd you didn't burn a whole country CD or a whole rap CD. You put a little mix of everything on there. And I, I feel like that's kind of how we wanted to develop our music, but we wanted to do it song by song. Like in one song, we wanted you to have a country rap, rock, Southern rock type vibe. And you know, it was, it was crazy. I mean, uh, a lot of people told us we were crazy in the beginning and Somehow it, it worked out. I mean, well, in the beginning, Kid Rock proved them all wrong. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. He, he, he's the one that kind of put, I mean, in a way, he put that whole genre together and he still stands. Well, I'm not going to say he stands alone because you guys are there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, being mentioned with Kid Rock is awesome. And, and you're right. He, he proved them all wrong. He, he proved that look don't put my music in a box you know tear down some walls i don't care what you call my music but listen to it it's good it's got a message and and that's awesome man that, that's all you could ever ask for as a musician is somebody coming up to you saying man i feel your music i really feel what y'all are doing well where did where does where does the band's name come from <laughs> well what it was is we we had three original members and 
it was as simple as we took our middle initial and that was basically the coolest word we could spell out of it. So anything you read on the internet about the name, we can't take credit for it. Uh, fans, you know, ha have some outlandish names on there. You can read a lot of different names of what the lax means, but we can't take credit for it. It was as simple as that. The fans have come up with their own meaning and we're just, we have some of the greatest fans in the world. Well, you know, it, it is absolutely astounding on the success that you have had without radio support. I mean, I mean, even to fathom, and I know other artists who, who are doing very well without radio. And, and I think, I'm not going to say, you know, radio is not as strong as it used to be because we're all walking around with smartphones with Pandora, Spotify, YouTube, and in a way, people want to listen to what they want to listen to and not wait for their favorite song to finally show up two hours later on the radio. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think it's a great time in music right now um, because you do have people like your Tyler Childress and your Cody Jinks and stuff like that that you wouldn't normally know because they wasn't on a radio. But you got those guys that you never hear on the radio selling out arenas right now which is like never been done before. And, uh, you know, I, I have to credit just, just like what you said, this smartphone you got is, this is the generation of, I know what I want to hear and I want to hear it now. And like, that's right. You know, the, uh, you know, I think, you know, right off the top of my head, the only other band that I can think of that has a very large fan base that zero radio airplay is rival sons. Yeah, and absolutely. you know, but you guys are on a whole different level. I mean, when I'm listening, you know, I sat down to listen to your music, and I'm like, man, the production is like professional, top notch. And I'm thinking, you know, radio's really screwing up by not playing these songs. <laughs> man, and, and you say that about production. I mean, I can remember fifteen. 17 years ago taking four or five rap songs to nashville and actually paying these nashville musicians that you know these these older guys steel guitar you know like paying them to play on our music and we didn't really know if it would work but we had the idea and come to find out you know those guys sitting there and they had a ball and they came to us and they said thank y'all for bringing us something new we enjoyed playing on this like they say we normally get to play on the same old things every day so thanks for bringing something refreshing and that's just kind of how the sound and production took place after that it was just it was like okay cool so w we have some old school country players that enjoy playing different stuff well it it came out grammy where did where did the uh the art of your arrangements come from? Oh man, you know, we we try to put together like a blueprint of an album, and and like I said, the, the mixed city genre. So we we try to put two or three heavier rap songs on a on an album. We try to put three or four more traditional country sounding music on there. 
and then we do these hybrids that we think are are dance songs or party songs and kind of and then you know you got to have one or two slow sad breakup songs too or, or it's just not considered country <laughs> so <laughs> we we just kind of took that blueprint and ran with it because you know you're in a different mood every day if not every hour so i mean i just we didn't want to a slow downer album just to say it was country we we, we wanted some of everything well did you produce our... did you produce your own album or did you have a producer come in to help no we uh we work with probably four or five different producers now now that the genre's gotten gotten bigger and stuff in the beginning we we did produce a lot of our own stuff and uh and then we met some guys and it's like each producer's sound, you kind of, you kind of learn what they're great at, and and then you you'll find another producer and you say, well, he's great at these these more rap songs, and this producer's a, a lot better at these more country sounding songs. So we always go with multiple producers because we don't want our whole album to sound the same. Well, that that makes a whole lot of sense because I know. I mean, the majority of the recording acts out there deal with the same producer album after album. And some of them need to really break away from that yeah. and, and, and to get out of their own box because I'm not going to mention any names, but there are artists out there. When you hear the next album, you're like, I already heard this. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> it, it's not new. You know, they're just playing off their, their loyal fan base because they'll buy anything. And I don't think that's actually fair to the fan base, but it also, I think it slows down the artist's ability to grow a new fan base, regardless it, it, how old they are. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And I, I think a little bit of that is the artist almost being afraid to step outside of the box because they did have a little success. So in their mind, they're thinking, well, I had a little success on this lane right here, so I need to stick with it as long as I can. You know, so I, I can kind of see it from both sides, but yeah, like, we're just not afraid to step outside the box and, and do No, what. no, you're not. Well, for you, who are your musical influences? Oh, man, I, I grew up idolizing Hank Williams Jr. I, I've probably been to 15 Hank concerts now. We actually got to open up for him a few times, which is like, that was the the height of the career for me, you know, just to see set side stage and watch Bo Sleepers do his thing is, um, but, you know, like I said, we grew up in a time where it was cool to listen to everything. So, I mean, I got influences from Elvis to Tupac and everything in between. <laughs> and I always tell people if they're ever on the fence about listening to us, come to a live show because I promise you, you've never seen a live show like ours. Like we may go from Elvis to Tupac in the same set list. You know, it, it, it's just, a, it's, it's cool, man. We enjoy what we do. Well, you know, I like I said, I've been listening to a lot of uh, your music and with a brand new single, Hellraisers in Heaven, that one took me by surprise because not only do I absolutely love the song, with the title Hellraisers in Heaven, I was not expecting it to be as mellow as it is. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. It, uh, like I said, me and Brian are really suckers for sad, slow country songs. I mean, like we, it, it, you wouldn't think that because our biggest hits are more faster, upbeat songs, but we really enjoy writing and doing those kind of songs. And, uh, you know, Hellraisers in Heaven is just kind of, you, you got to put yourself back in your high school body and think about all the bad things or questionable things you did. And in that teenage mind, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder, like, you know, I, I wonder if God lets Hellraisers in Heaven like me, you know, and, and that's just the whole concept of the, of the song. And I think it turned out great. No, it, it turned out absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, I don't listen to a whole lot of rap, but I'm listening to your music and I'm like, man, I've been missing out. And, <laughs> but when I was listening to Hellraisers in Heaven, I'm like, oh man, I, I could listen to this all day long. And, but the cool thing about the song is not only the, the melody, but the words of the song are fantastic because it's real life. It's what people do. It's what people think. And I mean, was there a little bit of past uh, church history there that uh, you pulled from to write this song? Absolutely, man. I mean, you know, I've, I've been there way too many times hung over on the back pew, like feeling like crap and just, feeling like the preacher's message was directly to me <laughs> that Sunday. It's like, man, I, you know, I need to get my, my life together. <laughs> well, you know, when I, when I was listening to the song and because the lyrics are so good, I got to thinking, I'm thinking there's, you can't write lyrics like this unless you've lived it, unless you've been there, unless you're hung over in the, in the back pew. But if you're in the back pew, at least the good news is you're there to hear the good news. That's right. <laughs> yeah, That's no, so it's not like you're you're way you know, you're hung over in your truck or at home and and you didn't go. You actually made the effort with a with a hangover to get there, which to me is that's a story in itself. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Everything we write, we live or somebody close to us lives, you know, and it's just, it's, it's all about creating the art from real life experiences. Like, you know, when we first started, you know, there were only really two kinds of rappers. There was gangster rappers or they talked about having a bunch of money. Okay. So me and Brown were still in high school broke. So we didn't have any money to talk about. We ain't never shot anybody, so we couldn't talk about nothing gangster either. So, you know, the only thing we could really talk about and be real was, you know, hunting and fishing and riding dirt roads and, you know, getting drunk and, you know, stuff like we do in the country. Well, you know what's, what's really funny, and I don't know if a lot of people have ever truly paid attention. You know, the blues all was always there to tell a story. Rap was the, was birth from story. I mean, with stories and storytelling, and uh, and and, I, and to me, they're almost mirroring each other.
because yeah. it's talking about real life, maybe talking about something you did, or maybe talking about or singing about something you wish you had done <laughs> or done better. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Like a, a, a great song has a story in it and a great song can paint a mental picture for you. Like, Hey, I can see this happening. And that's always been the definition of a great song to me because I mean, anybody can write a song. Anybody can even sell a song but not everybody can make somebody feel that song that that's right and you know it's always like what we talk about you know wow that artist really sold that song and you do that with hellraisers in heaven when you sing it you believe it you can feel it you know you can put yourself you know the listener can put themselves in your shoes and go yeah i've done that I, i've been there you know, and for you, what's your favorite song of all time that that's not one of your own? Um, favorite song of all time. Oh, I definitely have a a few of those. Um, I, I love Pink Floyd. Wish you were here. That's probably one of my at least top five. You know, uh, probably got a few Rolling Stone songs in there too. Like, I'm. My favorite, in, in case you, you didn't pick up on that, my favorite era of music was 60s and 70s rock that, by, by far. And that's, that's still, I still listen to that every day. Oh, every yeah, yeah. Day. I love the mid-70s, late 70s rock right up into barely the early 80s. You yeah. know, I like the hair band, band era uh, before grunge killed it. <laughs> We're gonna blame Grudge on that one, uh, but yeah, but yeah, I'm with you on the whole classic rock deal because, you know, we live in such a digital age. Production has become very digital, but there's a magic to recording on tape and recording on multi-track tape and trying to create something that well, you can't. It's almost not that you can't duplicate it digitally, but there's just a magical sound, a way to, you know, it's kind of like Eddie Van Halen plugging his guitar in into a blown out amp and creating a, creating the brown sound that nobody can duplicate on their own. Absolutely. I mean, and, and the talent level back then was just astronomical because there wasn't any of this wealth you made one mistake, so we'll just go in and digitally fix it. It was like, no, if you made a mistake, we're recording the whole song over. And like, those mistakes have made those songs famous. Absolutely. I mean, like, even the, like if Janis Joplin was around right now, people, studio engineers wouldn't like the crackle in her voice because they would say, that's wrong. And but, they do auto-tune on it. Yeah, absolutely. But that's why we love Janis Joplin and the Joe Cockers and like, you know, it's that those little perfect imperfections that made it great. Well, yeah, you know, it was funny because uh, this is this is almost off off subject, but not really off subject. We were sitting around one day and I was listening um, to the song called Any Day Now that most people in modern day Anytime they hear any day now, they think of Ronnie Millsap and they think of no one else. Yeah. But if you know the history of the song, it was written by 
Burt Beckrack, performed by Tom Jones. Elvis did it. And, but then, uh, recently I, I had the opportunity to uh, interview Paul Carrick from Mike and the Mechanics and Squeeze and Ace. And he did this, he did the song. And so we were sitting around one day and we literally laid out all different versions and started listening to each version. And you're like, okay, Tom followed Bert's almost to a T, but he kind of upped the beat. Yeah. Elvis kind of followed Tom, but had that Elvis sound because when Ronnie tuts on drums, it's Elvis. Okay. <laughs> and, and then when Ron, then when Ronnie Millsap did it, it was just like, Whoa, he like cleaned the slate clean and it was completely simplified country with piano and just enough arrangement around it, but it was all Ronnie and his voice. Then when you pull in Paul Carrick's version, it's more of this R and B soulful bluesy, but he did it in a ballad style. But every single version, you can learn something from Absolutely. the production and from the artist. And I mean, have, have, you know, early on with the lax, did y'all ever do cover songs in concert? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when you're playing those smoky bars and people don't know your music yet, you got to entertain them in some kind of way. And, and, you know, part of being a great live player, I think is knowing your crowd, like you, you got to feel what, what works with whatever crowd that that you're in at that early in your stage of the career. Cause, because those people come out to be entertained. Those people come out to have a beer and forget about work and just, and let loose. And, and so sometimes you may have to play some Texas two-step all night long. And, you know, other times you can venture and, and maybe get a little creative with some vanilla ice or sweet home Alabama or something. Well, you know, it was funny because <clears throat> Recently, I had the opportunity to go and see a couple of past recording acts that were guests on my show to go see them in person. And they're independent artists just like you guys are. And with one of them, they, there was an opening act. And the guy's up there, and the guy's really good, but everybody's looking at their smartphones. Then he yeah. pulled out a couple of 80s covers, and everybody perked up and really got into it. And I'm like, wow. You people kind of suck, man. This guy's up here putting out his own music, which is really good, but you only perk up on the stuff that you've heard 20, 30 years ago. But then, yeah. I, then I was talking with another duo, and we got to talking and talking about different venues in different cities, and, and I'd mentioned one, and they said, uh, are they a listening crowd? And I've never really heard that, heard someone say that before, and then it dawned on me. What do you do in a situation in which you come into a crowd, maybe early on, maybe not now, but early on when you guys were starting out and you ended up with a crowd that technically wasn't a listening crowd, was there a switch that you turned on to make them pay attention? Yeah, definitely was. Um, you know, it was almost like a, like a challenge for us every night to win a crowd over because you got to think before we started touring, there was nothing like us. And and what I mean by that is when we came in, there would be a Friday night 
where we would play an all hip hop club and then there would be a Saturday night that same week where we played a, a two-step honky-tonk opening up for an unknown Blake Shelton at the time. And so we, we really didn't fit in either place. We were somewhere in the middle. So we had to win over both sides. And, and that was definitely something that we pride ourselves on every night. And it's, I, I remember our go-to was a Leonard Skinner Simple Man because you know, the way we looked, they could tell we were different. And, you know, of course, we got that word rap attached to us. But we could be in any honky-tonk in the world and go into Simple Man. And you could kind of see every redneck's face in their change and be like, oh, yeah, they're one of us. They know our national anthem. <laughs> and like, <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, I, I have been to so many concerts. You have, too. And... You know when you have the big headliner and you have to sit through opening acts. And to me, I would rather have the opening act to be so much different than the headliner. Yeah. You know, because, yep. it, you know, we all know the story of Black Sabbath when Van Halen opened up and Ozzy's like, I don't want to follow those guys. I mean, could you imagine, I mean, being a headliner and being scared that the opening act just showed you up. I mean, did you all ever feel like when you opened up for somebody, we're like, yeah, we nailed this night. They're only going to remember us. <laughs> that that was, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but that was our mindset. Like, you know, it, we would go up there with a chip on our shoulder and say, look, like, no disrespect to who we're opening up for, but we're going to try to blow them off the stage. Like, Jerry Lee Lewis, killer style, you know, like, light the piano on fire and so you can you know and that was just our mindset and it wasn't any disrespect it was just that 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 challenge like okay these people are here to see them let's make them leave remembering us well did you ever have a headliner come up to you after the show or right before they were to go on thinking man you guys nailed it yeah, we, we've, we've had a couple of congratulations. Uh, I remember Dirk Bentley being one of them when we opened up for him down at a South Florida music festival. And he was just like, man, I really enjoyed y'all set. Y'all were really doing some cool things with the drum and the bass. Like back then, he didn't know what really 808 was bass like that we used. So I remember just seeing him blown away by it. And it, it really made us feel good that, the artist of that caliber enjoyed what we were doing. Well, what is some of the best advice you've ever received from a headliner? Uh, the best advice, um, you know, we got to hang out with Jamie Johnson a few times on his bus and, and Jamie is a very enlightened guy. Like he, he is really headstrong, heart strong, believes what he believes and, don't really care if it offends anybody. And, and that, that's one of the biggest things he said, you know, cause we were talking about songs that sell and stuff like that. And we were like, yeah, yeah, maybe we need to do this style of song. And he just stopped us right there. And he said, once you go down that road, it's hard to, hard to get back to where you were at. He said, do the songs you want to do. And if people like them, that's a plus. Yeah, because the fans gonna believe it. 
Absolutely. And that, and that just kind of hit us and, and we've kind of stuck with that motto our whole career that we're not going to do a certain type of song just because it's selling right now. We're going to do what we want to do and hopefully people will like it. Well, with the numbers you guys are putting out, uh, you're doing the right thing. I mean, I even checked on Spotify and you're averaging over 800,000 listeners a month. I mean, that's, that's insane with no radio. Of course, you know, like I said, you know, radio technically is not the powerhouse that it used to be. I mean, if we turn on the radio right now, you're lucky if you could hear 10, maybe 15 different artists because yeah. it's all, pay, you know, a lot of people don't understand how the music business works, but it's pay to play when it comes to radio, radio airplay. And uh, to me, the greatest recording acts are not on the radio. They're guys like you. I mean, there there's so many people that I've interviewed that could outsing the the most famous uh, solo artists and acts that are on the radio today. Outsing them. I mean, not not even an effort, you know. And uh, and these people don't need auto tune. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't need auto tune. But I, I I do know one thing: because of Hellraisers in Heaven, it's confession time. So. For you, Clay, uh, tell us a story about a time that you raised hell and didn't get caught. Whew. Because I you have... knew if you did, you'd be in big trouble. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been fortunate. I've been lucky to not get caught at a lot of things. But, uh, yeah, they, it's sad to say uh, one night in high school, you know, snuck out. They and my buddy, we snuck out, you know, we went to a little party and, you know, whatever, drove home drunk, which is, that's the first thing I got away with. And I don't condone driving drunk, but we did that night and, and we made it. And I don't remember getting back to his house. I don't remember anything about it, but apparently I drove and I just remember waking up the next morning, thanking God saying, look, I'll never do this again. Thank you for getting me home safe thank you. I'll never do it again. And, and so far so good. Like, like I said, I've been fortunate because some people don't get that lucky. Yeah, that, that, that's true. We, you know, in a way we got, we got to be thankful for God's uh, grace and mercy for uh, protecting us and pr protecting, protecting ourselves, uh, you know, for the things, for the stupid things that we do and we've all done them. We've all done them. Well, because you've received such uh, absolute expert advice from Jamie Johnson, uh, Clay, what kind of advice do you have for all of the independent artists out there that, uh, that need to work on improving their fan base? They got the talent, they got the sound, but they, they need to improve that fan base. What can they do? Don't, don't skip steps. And what I mean by that is build your core fan base and and whatever it takes you have to figure out what that takes whether it takes getting off a stage every night going to the bar drinking with them shaking every hand in that bar uh you know whatever it may be you have to do that step like if you skip that step like i, I i've got friends that have had four number one radio hits that can't sell a thousand tickets to a concert right now and it's because they skipped those bottom level steps of going out, meeting people, kissing babies, signing autographs, 
I mean, whatever you got to do is it's almost like that the you're running for mayor or something and you need to meet everybody in that room every night and tell them why you're running for mayor tell them why they should stream your music and convince them and that's just the the most important step of building a fan base i think is getting out there and meeting everybody yeah you know and i think even today you can tell especially with a big name artist those that really knew how to reach their fans on a personal level and those that just kind of rode the whole record label deal and probably have never even talked to a fan in their life. And you can tell. Right. And and most of those who who have never talked to a fan in life, they, they have a, a spike. And, you know, and the, it's a hard spike. Yeah, they might be hot for a year, but then five years down the road, you're thinking back, well, man, what happened to these guys? I don't see anything from them anymore. But the people that build the fan base the right way, they hit that spike, but they stay kind of even and tour every year and sell out shows every year because they have that rabid, loyal fan base. Well, I mean, let's go back to kicking a mud. Let's just use this for a quick example. Certified gold, that's usually what, 500,000 units sold. Yes. Platinum's a million. Um, diamond is what, 10 million, I think. And... And it's very, I mean, being an independent artist, how in the world did you get certified gold? I mean, do you, do you have a record label contract? Uh, we uh we had one then, you know, we, we were signed with Average Joe's, which is Colt Ford's record label. So, uh, you know, he was the only other guy kind of doing this music at the time. So we, we thought that would be a, a great marriage, great partnership, because we could kind of knock these doors down and figure it out together. But still, it, it was a very, very small independent label. So we really didn't know if these songs were going to work or not, you know, because like you said, you, you need big money to get on the radio. And back then you needed big money to get your music in people's hands. And, and we didn't have any of that. So I kind of credit the success early on strictly YouTube because Pandora, Spotify, everything was so new. And that, that one video, it, it just, it, it jump started our whole career. We, we finally got validation that, Hey, there's people out there and there's people that dig this kind of music. Well, and, and to know that really for you guys, the timing was perfect by getting in early, you know, people buying the new smartphones, they're, they're downloading all of the new apps and they're signing up for like Pandora and Spotify and things of that sort. You came in at the right time, and now you have this massive fan base. And uh, for you guys, though, so you released the single "Hellraisers in Heaven." Uh, do you do you focus on releasing singles ever so often? Uh, and then when do you kind of plan on you know, let's say, releasing a full blown album? How, how do you how do you work out that type of scheduling? Yeah, it's it's been weird the last few years since COVID. I, I will say that because it, it, it seems like that more bands went to just releasing singles maybe every three or four months, um, which I'm, you know, I'm always going to be a fan of the full album from somebody because I, I, that's one of my favorite parts that we do is laying out a full album, picking what songs are on there, uh, any any messages you put in the album, like, I've always just been an album person. Like I love that 
side of it. And and I think we're going to put out a new album late summer, early fall this year. All right. Well, I, I expect you guys to come back on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll still coming through Houston one day. That's it. And, and ladies and gentlemen, and, and Clay, I tell all of my viewers, all of my listeners, the same thing when it comes to, to a recording artist. You buy the music. You buy the album. Buy the single if that's all, if that's all you can get. And buy the merch. I got merch on right now. Whoop. <laughs> I got merch on. And not only that, when they come to your area, you got to buy the concert ticket and go see them in person get their autograph go by that merch table i do i love supporting the independent recording artists out there and the lacks are no different yeah they they have one of the largest fan bases i've ever seen but when they come to my area i'm getting a ticket i'm gonna go see them i'm gonna go have a lot of fun i'm gonna buy the album on vinyl you guys do offer vinyl right Absolutely. We, we've been talking about it for this album for sure and, and maybe a greatest hits on, on vinyl one day because I'm, I'm a big fan of the vinyl too. All right. Well, I've got my system sitting right over here that plays nothing but vinyl on a, a full-blown vintage system. And uh, hey, and nothing like the, you know, snap, crackling pops there here and there because that's the real deal. And Clay, right. how can all of the people listening and watching how can they join the the Dirt Rock family and become an official Dirt Bag member? Man, uh, go to DirtRockEmpire.com. Uh, it, it'll it'll tell you step by step of what to do. Um, that that's our fans, but but we treat it more like family. And what we mean by that is we wanted to create a network of people that, for example, if you're driving to Oklahoma. And your car breaks down on the interstate we want to be able to go on there and say hey this is this is one of our people right here if we got any fellow dirt bags around can anybody go out and help him try to get his car you know what i mean that's the kind of brotherhood and family that that we're building with the dirt bags and dime bags united across the country wow that is absolutely amazing clay now that's what i call a true family and uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can't get that just anywhere. And to to reach them, just simply go to thelax.net for all of their music, their merch, their tour, tour information, and to join the, the Dirt Rock family and become a Dirt Bag member and, uh, and be part of that real family that Clay just told everyone about. So what's, what's up for the rest of the year for the, for, for the Lax? Oh man, we're touring as heavy as we can. Um, we're gonna be looking to put out our next single maybe in two months, and then, then like I said, late summer really gear up to to drop a whole album, which we're so excited for because we hadn't dropped a whole album in a couple years now. Like I said, it's just been singles since COVID really. So it's like I said, this is one of my favorite parts is dropping the whole albums. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Keep on the lookout for that. But in the meantime, you got to tickle those ears with Hellraisers in Heaven. Because as for me, it's one of the best songs I've heard this year alone. Absolutely fantastic. And we can ask the question, are there Hellraisers in Heaven? I would, I would say so, because Jesus died for all of them. 
So you can take that to the bank. And Clay, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you all for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I'm expecting all of you back for that brand new album. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll see you next time.